Well, after a bit of a hiatus, we are going to be back in the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be in Mark 3 if you want to start working your way there. And in Mark 3, we are going to look at a text that frightens a lot of people. And my hope is that for those of you who are complacent, maybe you'll be a little more frightened. And for those of you who are frightened, perhaps you will be far more comfortable. But the reality is this text isn't about a frightening verse. It's about an unfathomable gift. And if you don't know where I'm going, you probably don't. That's Mark chapter 3, verse 20. And we'll take from verse 20 to verse 35, and then we'll begin to unpack the text. So Mark chapter 3, verse 20. The word of the Lord reads, Then he, being Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Looks like a lot of stuff. In fact, it looks like a three-act play, if you stop and look closely. First act, we have Jesus' family. Jesus' family is concerned about him. He's working too hard, he's in danger, someone's got to help him, he has to eat. You know, Jewish moms want to make sure their kids eat. So, off on a mission, they went to rescue him. Act 2, we have the scribes who are accusing Jesus of being from the devil. Jesus speaks to them in parables, addresses it, and then we come to Act 3... Jesus' family shows up for the great family intervention. Well, it actually all fits together. And I don't know if you've ever read Mere Christianity. Has anyone ever read that by C.S. Lewis? I remember reading that very early on, before I was saved. And Lewis has a wonderful uh, description of who people say Jesus is and who we can say he is. And I wonder, I'll read it to you in a minute. I wonder if when he wrote this, if he had just read this text... Listen to this from mere Christianity. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis is saying, we can call Jesus Lord, lunatic, or liar. And what's really interesting is Lewis didn't come up with that idea. The Lord God did. The Holy Spirit gave us that in this text. You see, Jesus' family called him a lunatic. The scribes called him demonic. And at the end, Jesus says, these are the ones who call me Lord. Now let's look at that and see what's going on. The Gospels were written so that we could know that Jesus is the Christ with certainty, and by knowing that, have eternal life. I just paraphrased John 20 for you, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you read the beginning of Luke, chapter 1, Luke is giving an account to Theophilus, and he says to Theophilus, in verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So we're in Mark 3. We haven't gotten very far into Mark 3. But we've seen Jesus show that he has authority over the physical realm, authority over the spiritual realm, authority over the Sabbath. We've seen him perform signs and wonders and do amazing things before the people. But yet, if you haven't noticed, there's been no human declaration yet that Jesus is the Christ. The Father has said that back in chapter 1. Demons have said it later on in chapter 1. But no human has declared Jesus to be the Christ yet. In fact, it won't be for many chapters until we see Peter say that you are the Christ. But that's only an intellectual ascent. You'll have to get there with me in a few weeks or months. But it won't be until you get, I think it's chapter 15, that you see the first human declaration that Jesus is the Christ. And you know who declares that? It's one of the Romans who was killing him. So how could we have all of this stuff Jesus did, have the absolute certainty of Scripture, and yet people can't know what's going on? Well, there's a problem, and it's called total depravity. We're blind, we're deaf. But there's a process by which God opens our eyes, and it's also a truth that we're accountable to God for who we say Christ is. Let's look at the first two verses. Then he went home, What home? I don't know what home. Remember earlier he was hanging out at Peter's house where Peter's mother-in-law was sick with a fever. It's probably the same house. Maybe Jesus had his own house. Maybe Jesus lived there. But it doesn't matter what house. He went to his home, a house in this area. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Remember, he'd been picking up followers. Not disciples, people that would follow him around because they were amazed by what he did and they wanted to get something out of it for themselves. And when his family heard it, that he was packed in and he couldn't eat, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now stop and think about that. Jesus is about 30 years, actually he's 31 here probably. He lived with his family for a long time. He grew up with his siblings. He he lived with Mary, right? Joseph was around at least till he was 12, maybe a little longer, but he's not around now. How did they not know that Jesus was the Christ? Now, Mary knew. 
That's important to understand. Mary didn't understand the fullness of it, perhaps, but Mary knew her son was of God and was God. How? Because Gabriel told her. She knew who was in her womb and who she was raising. But could you imagine those conversations? Mary sits down with the other kids, and yes, there are other kids. Scripture tells us Jesus had brothers and sisters. In fact, it tells us the names of some of them. And in fact, if you turn this way, you'll see the Holy Spirit used a couple of them to write books of the Bible. We'll get to that in a minute. But Mary's sitting down at the dinner table with the family, and she says, all right, guys, i got to tell you something. Your brother is perfect. Why do you say he's perfect? Well, he's God. All right. He stole from me. He's not God. How do you you tell your kids your, your brother is perfect? He's God. Well, you know she at some point tried to communicate something along those lines, but they obviously didn't believe that. John 7, 5. It says, for not even his brothers believed, trusted, believed in him. So his family cared about him. Don't get me wrong. They weren't like Joseph's brothers. They cared about him. They didn't believe that he was who he said he was. And what happened was Jesus was busy and Jesus was in danger. People wanted to kill him. He wasn't resting. He wasn't eating. He was going crazy. The crowds were using him and abusing him. They said, guys, we got it there in Nazareth. Little trip over to get him in Capernaum. Guys, we got to go get Jesus. We got to rescue him. It's going bad. They thought he was out of his stinking mind. Do you know that? If you're truly a disciple of Christ, do you know what you want lost people to think of you at some point for the right reasons? That you're out of your mind, but, but for the right reasons. You know, Sometimes we act out of our minds for the wrong reasons. So his family decides they're going to come and get him. They cared about him. They wanted to help him. But they were dead wrong with what they were doing. They thought God was crazy. Now, the good news, my friends, is that we would never think such a thing, would we? I mean, as Christian people, we know with all of our heart that Jesus is Lord. He is certainly not demonic. He is absolutely not crazy. And we would never, ever act like we think he's crazy, would we? Are there ever times when you do that? Let's be honest. Don't speak out loud. You might embarrass yourself, but we all do the same thing. You see, his family went to help him because Jesus was going to hurt himself and didn't know what he was doing. Peter says to him, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not going to die. I got your back. We sometimes say to Jesus, do we not? Yeah, Jesus, I hear what you're saying in your word. Clearly, this can't apply to me because if anyone did this, this wouldn't end well, so I can't possibly do it. See, what I should be doing is, boom. Do we not do that? Jesus, I I hear what you're saying. I know that you know what you're talking about in my head, but mm, I'm just not going to be happy, joyful, content, or anything of the like if I actually follow you. This whole thing of dying to self, that's a little bit overkill. I'm not going to die all the way to myself. We'll just have a partnership. We never do that, do we? Well, let me express two things to you. As you'll see in a minute, your salvation doesn't rest in your perfect obedience, and you can praise God for that. Your salvation rests in Jesus' perfect obedience. Don't grow complacent in thinking, well, I don't have to do anything because Jesus saved me. We'll get to that at the end. But look at this. Jesus doesn't need our help and our intervention. Jesus wasn't losing it, and he needed his family to show up to rescue him. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, but his family needed him so that they could have true joy, 
so that they could bring God glory and so that they could truly live. Now, don't let those go by too quick. Jesus doesn't need our help. He desires our obedience. And obeying him requires us to understand that we're the crazy ones. We don't have the perspective or the wisdom of God. So when God tells us to do something, the question is, will you trust yourself or will you trust in God? And God says, trust in the Lord your God with all, trust in the Lord your God with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Well, some people say Jesus is crazy and they're not saved. For those of us who are saved as recovering sin addicts, we must daily come before the Lord and allow the Holy Spirit to convict us of idols that exist in our hearts and us relying in ourselves and say, Holy Spirit, convict me of any way in which I am telling the Lord that he is crazy by how I live. You see, the reason we struggle to bring glory to God, the reason we struggle to have the joy God desires, the reason we struggle to truly live anxiety-free lives is because we don't trust in God. So his siblings, his family, they're on their way because their brother's crazy. And while they're on their way, Mark changes the scene. And he brings us to the scribes who came down from Jerusalem who were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Interestingly, you'll, you'll rarely come across people. You'll say, who do you say Jesus is? They say, oh, he's demonic. Do you ever notice that? Rarely. Uh, you, maybe once or twice in a life you come across people like this. Most people give you the nonsense of he's a good teacher. Or, you know, he, sometimes he's a little crazy. He was a good teacher, a little bit out of his mind, so he made some crazy claims. But rarely do you hear the demonic. Now, the scribes are saying he's demonic. They're saying, he's a Beelzebul. He He's a liar. He, he's crazy, crazy, demonically empowered. Now, why would they say that? Now, pay attention here. Lost people have a lot of reasons for, for trying to deny Scripture, but check this out. Jesus performed signs and wonders. Everybody tracking with me? If you're going to give me five minutes, this is the five minutes. Give me more than five. Jesus performed signs and wonders. If he didn't really perform the signs and wonders, the scribes would never have called him demonic. You see, you can't cast out demons. You can't open blind eyes. You can't later on raise dead people. You can't feed a multitude from a, a snack pouch. You can't walk on water. You can't calm a storm. You can't raise a, a dead boy in a coffin on the way to his funeral and just say, hey, get up, clunk. Unless you have a power that you possess that blows people's minds. And the scribes and the Pharisees never tried to dispute the works our Lord did. Why? Because they were so real and they were so examinable and they were so historically verifiable. They were there and saw with their own eyes what Jesus did. So they had two options. It was either from God or it was from Satan. And they chose to say his power is from Satan. Do you see that? So nowadays, people are like, well, we don't know. Listen, the religious leaders knew for sure that he was doing these works. They said, though, the works were not of God. They were of Satan. That's a problem. Now watch this. In Matthew 9, 34, 10, 25, 12, 24, I'll say it again in case you're trying to write. In Matthew 9, 34, Matthew 10, 25, Matthew 12, 24 to 32. That's a parallel account. 
And in Luke eleven fourteen through 23, which is a different occasion than this, you see the scribes and the Pharisees trying to convince people that Jesus is of the devil. They wanted people to disbelieve in him at all costs. And they say here he's possessed by Belzebul. You know what Belzebul is? Anybody know? You think? That is a name for the devil. You're absolutely right. Flip your Bible over to 2 Kings. And if you go to 2 Kings 1, 3, you'll see where this name came from. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 3, it says here, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Baalzebub means Lord of the high places. Well, what the Jews did is they tweaked the letter in Baalzebub and turned it into Belzebub, which means not Lord of the high places. Ready for this? It's been weeks. You guys ready? Lord of the poop. Lord of the dung. And it was a name that they called Lucifer by. Beelzebub, Lord of the poop. And they're saying to Jesus. Now, when you look at it that way, Jesus works in the power of the God of mm, poop. That's a horribly slanderous term. It's demonic to attribute to Jesus. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And what does Jesus do? He called them to himself. And he told a couple parables. He says, Satan can't work against Satan. Listen, Satan's not going to come and take his demons who are hiding in people and working in the religious institutions and have them come out freaking out and run away. He's not going to undo his kingdom. He says, a house divided against itself won't stand. A kingdom divided against itself will, will crumble. And then in verse 27, he twists the argument onto a positive and says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What he's saying is, I've come to plunder Satan's house. And I can plunder his house because I'm stronger than Satan. Which leads to a question, what is his house and what are his possessions? Do you guys know where he lives? He doesn't have a physical house, does he? He's, he's not a physical being. He doesn't have physical possessions, but his possessions are the demons and those whom the demons have power over. And Jesus came to set the captives free. Do you see that? He says, listen, I'm not, a, I'm not of the devil. I can't be of the devil because I wouldn't be undoing the works of the devil. I have more power than the devil. The power I have isn't of Beelzebub. The power that I have is of God because I am God. And then we get to this horribly frightening verse that we'll just skip over. Should we or should we, should we look at it? This is a scary moment. We may, we may find out someone here is permanently disqualified themselves from salvation. I don't know. Do you guys really want to look at this or should we go by it? Ignorance is bliss. No, it's not. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, says, for they were saying as an unclean spirit. Question. Can you commit an unforgivable sin in this life before you die? I want to know what you think. I want to know. You want to know the answer? Yeah. Yes. 
there is a sin which cannot be forgiven, and there is the capacity in people to commit that sin before they die. Here comes the problem. How do you know when you've done it? There was a, a lady I was reading a story of who was a non-believer for her entire childhood and early adulthood, who came to understand who Jesus was, who wanted to place her trust in him and call on his name for salvation, but she remembered when she read this text that there was a time not too long ago where in a moment of rage and anger at another Christian, she cursed the Holy Spirit. And she was horrified because she knew that she had disqualified herself from salvation. And she was so grieved by this, she was beside herself. She ruined her chance at eternity with God because of a brief momentary fit of rage. Did she really disqualify herself? Now, we don't want it. We want to be like, no, she didn't. Of course, whoa, whoa. Did she? No, she didn't. How do I know she didn't? Because she cared. Now, listen, I can't tell you the number of times people have come up to me and asked in concern, how do you know if you've committed the unpardonable sin? Listen, if you care, I'm almost 99.99% sure you have not committed the sin. What's the sin? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, look at the situation here. You have these scribes who have had basically full disclosure of who Jesus is. Jesus is physically there. He's preaching and teaching them. They see the signs and wonders with their own eyes. And based on that full disclosure, their verdict is, you're of the devil. Their hearts are so hardened. They refuse to accept what has been revealed to them. And they will go to hell. They're on the... Now... In fairness, I can't speak with certainty to these people because Jesus is giving them a warning. He says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And Jesus' point is when you start attributing the works of the Holy Spirit or blaspheming towards him, your toes are coming up onto the abyss of an eternity in hell. And if you want to go ahead and say the Holy Spirit's work is of the devil, done. Your heart has become so hardened that you will never have a desire to turn to God and be saved. And that's why it's called the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. Now, let me say something else. I did say, and I stand by this, and if you're interested, I can unpack it for you further, maybe real conversations, that people can commit this sin in this life. But can a Christian ever commit the unforgivable sin? Now, watch this. The answer is no. Now, do you know why I say no? It's because of grace through faith. Listen, if the Lord has so delighted to open your eyes to saving faith and call you to himself by grace in his mercy, he will keep you from ever committing an unforgivable sin. And that sin isn't just a brief, that sin is having disclosure of truth, uh, of seeing the gospel, of understanding the gospel, and saying, that is not good news, that is of Satan. And he will never let one of his children do that, even before they were to come to saving faith. And that is simply grace, and that is simply mercy. Now watch this. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, listen, listen to these words. I thank him who has given me strength. Remember, Paul was a bad dude, right? I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, 
persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's not about how bad you are, this unforgivable sin. It is when you get to the point, when you get to the point that you're attributing the work of Christ to demons. That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Why is that blaspheming the Holy Spirit, not Jesus? Because Jesus came in the name of the Father and worked in the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of his works were the Holy Spirit working through him. And he says to these scribes, you attribute my work to that of Beelzebul. Now you've gone over the edge. That's an unforgivable sin. What happened to the lady who was concerned because she verbally cursed the Holy Spirit? She was acting, as Paul says here, in ignorance and unbelief, not based on full disclosure. Do you see the difference? So I want you to, to, to a degree, if you were concerned as a believer that you may have committed this sin and disqualified, no, the fact that you care shows you that you haven't actually committed it. Verse 31 to 35. His family shows up. Mary comes with him. and says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sisters and mother. Was Jesus a nasty kid? Remember at the wedding feast in Cana? He's like, Mom, leave me alone. Paraphrasing. Go back and read that if you like. It doesn't sound quite right. It was perfectly respectful. Here, his mom and his brother show up. He said, your mom and your brothers are here. Who, who are they? I don't know them. These are, these are people I care. No, that's not what he's saying. Watch what he said. This is why we entitled this sermon, whatever we called it. There we go. That looks better. The unfathomable gift. Watch this. They show up. And this is a patriarchal society. What does that mean? Family meant everything. We live in an individualistic society. Me means everything. In a patriarchal society, family is everything. It's all about identity, safety, security, vocation, acceptance, purpose, meaning, joy. It's all tied to family. The, the family bond is so tight. If, if for us as Western Americans, we almost can't grasp it. We grow up, we move away from family. In, in a patriarchal society, you not only do not move away from family, the dad makes the decisions. That's where you get into nice arranged marriages. That's where the, the boys go into the work that the dad was doing. They don't go and buy a house down the street. They build onto the existing structure. So, see the difference here. Jesus came from that society, and we can't grasp it, but watch what he says in that society. He says, this family, while important, is not the most important. Understand this. God gave us the family institution. Did you know that? God designed it so that he made man, and he made woman, and he made them to be able to marry, and he made them to be able to have children, and then we get into an extended family structure. Well, Jesus, as the author and perfecter of life here, 
knew that the family was important, but he also knew the family was illustrative. It was pointing to something else. Did you know that? And the family is pointing to the perfect family we have with God. Anyone here besides my boys live in a perfect family? Don't you dare speak, gentlemen. Anyone besides them live in a perfect family with a perfect father? None of us do, do we? Anyone here ever get along perfectly with your family, perfectly cared for, hear from your parents all you need to hear with you? I'm so well pleased. I delight in you because of who you are. It is so wonderful to call you son or daughter. Anybody have that? No. Do you know why we don't have that? Because family on this side is never going to meet the desires that God created in your heart that you think it will meet. You see, so often we think that when we, if we can gather with, with our physical family, I was around a whole bunch of them a couple days ago, and it was nice, don't get me wrong. But we think if we could do it, then we would be content and safe and secure. No, no, no. You see, Jesus came and he's saying here, listen, family's important. I love my mom and my brothers. How much does he love them? These brothers who didn't believe in him, do you know he loved them so much that he loved them right into the kingdom of God? He died for these denying siblings. And he loved them so much that these guys, they they were used by the Holy Spirit to write books of the Bible. And do you know what they called themselves? Didn't say, I, James, the brother of the Lord. James, a servant of Christ? That's crazy. Jesus nailed to the cross. Mary looking at him. You know what he's doing in agony on the cross? John, this is your mother now. He's saying, you take care of this lady. This is my mom. He's in agony on the cross. He loves that lady so much. Well, she shows up. He says, who's my family? I'll tell you who the family that matters is. Watch this. It is the ones who believe in me and who trust in me. Do you see that? Jesus is looking to his disciples. He's looking to his followers. Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That is the family that meets the desires. You become part of God's family by perfect obedience. I'm making sure you're awake. Someone say, heresy, that's not true. You become part of God's family by grace through faith. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You tracking with me? Well, why does he say this? Whoever does a will, he... Ah, doesn't Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Doesn't James, interestingly, disbelieving James, say, be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourself? When you stick a plant in the dirt and you water the plant, do you know what the plant does? It grows, it stays green, and if it's a fruit-bearing plant, it bears fruit. It's a sign of life. It's not validating its time in the dirt. My friends... If you truly call on Jesus as Lord, you will keep his commandments in increasing measure by joy. Not like the older brother in the parable. Jesus, I did everything you said. I kept the rules, I kept the laws, I kept the regulations, I gave you all this stuff, because if you live that way, he'll say, away from me, I never knew you. But when you understand, Lord Jesus, I'm not worthy. I'm worthy of nothing. I'll I'll be a servant in your house of the lowest order if I could just eat the morsels off your table. He says, no, my son. No, my brother. Let's be correct here. No, my sister. There's no table scraps for you. 
Come and sup with me at the table. Come and sit next to me. Come and enter into the rest of your eternal master. Remember when you were a little kid, you, you, the, the earliest memories you have. And I remember with my dad, I, I just love seeing my dad smile. And I would bring toys to play with my dad. And I try to help do stuff around the house just to see my dad smile. I wasn't trying to earn his favor. I just love when that big human being that dwarfed over me inside would look at me and smile and rejoice that I was around him and wanted to be like him. I would dress like him. I would put his clothes on. I'd try to act like him, not to earn my sonship, but to rejoice in who I was. I don't do that anymore because that would be weird. But with the Lord God, that's the attitude we should have. Jesus came and he said, listen, you all are truth denying, God hating sinners. You all deserve death and damnation. But I love you so much that I died on that cross after living the perfect life you couldn't. And I rose from the dead after taking the wrath you deserve so that you could call on me as Lord and be adopted into my family forever. Now, when you grasp that, you do not have a to-do list before God. You have a to-rejoice list. You pray not because you have to. You pray because you get to talk to your Father. You read the Bible not to check off a box, but it's because it's how God speaks to you primarily. You walk in obedience because you know God ain't crazy, but He's the Lord of all creation, and He knows what you should do so that you can have life abundantly. Do you see this? My friends, we have three choices. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. The evidence is clear. The evidence is examinable. No one has a rational problem that keeps them from saving faith. The problem is spiritual blindness, and the cure for spiritual blindness is to cry out to God to open your eyes. The Lord says, if you truly seek him, you will find him. So if you don't know the Lord today, I beg you if I might, call out to him and say, Lord, reveal yourself to me, please. I, I go to a guy, take Mark. You can read the whole thing in an hour and a half. And before you read it, call out to the Lord. Lord, if you're really even there, I want to know. Lord, would you be so pleased to, to reveal yourself? If this is true, give me ears to hear and a heart to receive. And if you truly want to know him, you will find him. Because he's not looking for you. He knows just where you are. Now, for those of us who have called on the name of Christ, praise the Lord that we cannot commit the unforgivable sin. But don't forget, there are times when we call him a lunatic. There are times when we trust in other things besides Christ. We bring dishonor to him and we rob ourselves of joy. It's not because of a lack of evidence. It's because we need to remember that we, my friends, are the crazy folks. But by grace, God is bringing us step by step to full sanity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you speak to us through your word in such a, a clear way. While not always easy to grasp, it is graspable, not by our strength, but by you, Holy Spirit, who gives us an ability to understand. Our counselor, our comforter, our help. We thank you, 
Lord Jesus, for the fact that you took people like us, God-hating, arrogant fools, and you offered us forgiveness, and that you did it in such a way that we could examine the evidence and claims that you have made. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on you. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us so we are not distracted by life as it takes place around us, but give us ears to hear our Good Shepherd and the strength and endurance and perseverance to follow him. Father God, the fact that we can call you Father because through your Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit you delighted in adopting us into a true and perfect family in which all of the desires you have placed in our heart can be met. There are not words to express the gratitude we should have for that. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. And in the name of our brother, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.